Welcome to Coffee House, the Archaeology of Mind, Part 4, the final part of an epic work that we have been exploring for a while now. Uh, we had three previous episodes and a couple of discussions, and it goes to the heart of much of what we need to understand. So, as always, we will talk about the contents, and then we're going to do an analysis to talk about uh, the qualities and lack thereof of the book. And then we'll do some big picture analysis to try to fit it into a broader understanding of the world. So, the contents. This one is beginning at chapter 10. We've gone through 1 through 9 in the other three parts, and this is chapter 10, titled Playful Dreamlike Circuits of the Brain, the Ancestral Sources of Social Joy and Laughter. And this one actually has some particular importance for trying to figure out how to better this whole thing. One thing that we know little about is the play systems that people function by. And these could be very important for trying to understand what ails people and what motivates people. Negative stimuli actually affects the inclination to play. If you have a lot of negative stimuli, then you're going to be less inclined to. And that makes it a good way to actually study what is a negative stimulus versus a positive. But abundant play can even reduce things like ADHD. And what the author posits that is important about this is that we have an, an ancestral gift of a mammalian brain that includes these play systems that we can understand by looking at other animals. So even rats laugh. <laughs> they emit this kind of sound that is akin to laughter when they're happy or when they're involved in this kind of play. So this is something that we can study in them and then apply to the way that people function. In rats, it promotes social intelligence. It has a very significant impact on their ability to develop and a number of things about their psychology. One thing about ADHD patients is that they tend to have 5% less neocortex engagement. But most ADHD sufferers do not have a pathology. They are most, most of them are just reacting when the urge to play is thwarted. So that's so that their response to that, their negative response to that, is the fact that their urge to play is being thwarted in that system. So that leaves a moral question of whether psychoactive drugs are actually a good thing or not. So some of the things that he simply suggests is that it's better to have rough-and-tumble play, especially before class. If you have a child or there are children that you might be might think are inclined to act out in class or something like that, then engage them in rough-and-tumble play or have them meet with other students or, you know, if they have siblings, it makes it easier. But any of those means to have them engage in rough-and-tumble play before class to help them socialize to promote the social intelligence, to engage the right systems prior to uh, having to sit for a class or something like that. And there are no links to aggression as of yet between uh, rough-and-tumble play and greater likelihood of engaging in aggression later on in life. I know Jordan Peterson was, of course, he was a, a huge proponent of this rough-and-tumble play. He talked about how it helps you understand the limits of the human body and the limits of what somebody can take or not take. That kind of a socialization is just as important. It helps you stretch out, and it's something that's cardiovascular, that's involved. Very, very important stuff. And the author suggests that the day should be started with about 30 minutes of active play. So not on a phone, not a video game, but 30 minutes of active play, especially with, uh, with other participants. And suggests also that Tourette's syndrome might be play impulses running amok. So they have these play impulses, but they can't express them in the healthier ways, so they, they end up coming out via Tourette's. And when you engage in this kind of play, it prevents nerve growth in areas of the brain where you have increases of depression. So you don't have as many nerves there, which means you're less likely to be able to stimulate those areas that cause depression. 
And when you don't have this kind of experience early in life, then you become resentful of others having fun and express that in various ways. Pets can even serve as a companion for this kind of play. Anybody who's had a a dog or even a cat (laughs) knows that they engage in this kind of play too, and they will do so with, with humans. But there's this kind of broad universal recognition of the need to play amongst mammals. It's something that is is very consistent. And without it, you're likely to become reclusive and a kind of menace. So it's a really important thing to make sure that is being integrated into children's lives. There's a a brief discussion here, it might not be brief, just my notes are, about living versus non-living and what that means. Metabolism and motility are things that are essential to living organisms. And he touches on the foundations of consciousness and goes into a discussion about the anatomy of the core self. So this particular area is trying to establish a core self to be distinguished from the rest of the self. He suggests a number of requirements that, or necessary prerequisites that would suggest that something is the core self as opposed to the rest of it. So things like it should be ancient, something that should be, have been passed down from our deep ancestors, mammalian ancestors. It should be multimodal. It should set a point for deviation from homeostasis. So you have a homeostasis that is the core self, and deviations from that you can tell are extra self. He says the SCMS fulfills this, and I did not write what that acronym stands for, but he suggests that that is the structure that is representative of the core self. Now, obviously, if you've listened to most of what I said historically, you probably know that I'm going to take issue with trying to find a core self relative to the rest of the self and saying that this one is uh, more especially metaphysically important, whereas some of the other things are less metaphysically important as the philosophical self, the philosophical I. Of course, we are kind of dancing around these philosophical and scientific issues uh, without expressing them explicitly. But he'll get into that even more as we go along. So then he goes into a talk about disorders and how raw, effective responses relate to disorders. And this is kind of the most immediate application of the things that he's talking about. So, of course, we go again into the idea of applying what goes on with animals and what we notice in animals to human beings being able to take those two things and find analogs in the way that animal brains function, in the way their affect functions, even though they don't have the neocortex to be able to mediate or reflect upon their affective states, they likely have a very similar structural experience as to what humans have with their affective states. And that gives us some kind of insight because we can peer more deeply into animals than we can to humans for ethical (laughs) reasons and other reasons. But even in things like the treatments of rage and PTSD, he thinks that uh, this kind of affective study can impact our ability to be able to mediate those things. Things like lust and how early social play relationships affect lust and our experiences of it, and how it figures heavily in our development of empathy, just in general, the way that our, our affective systems work. He brings up the DSM and the problems in the DSM. He cites this one particular category of ailment, that has 2,600 subtypes, and he's saying that the minutia is not useful, that we need broader, more concrete ideas and understandings of the way the brain works rather than just leaving it up to each individual person or patient, that we need broader principles of being able to treat these kinds of things. But other animal feelings, he says, have been marginalized historically and something that have been rejected out of this kind of uh, chauvinism (laughs) and uh, superiority of humans. But he suggests that we have to use other animals' emotions to try to understand. 
there are ways that you can use this understanding of the affective system to expunge bad memories. So there are ways that you can undermine the way the bad memory functions by associating it with more positive affects in the present. And everybody has those kinds of memories, you know, whether you recognize them or not, you know, deep in there that you're not able to control and that just arise and give these negative experiences and stimuli. But here he, ha- he also has a discussion about free will, and this is another one where we are just kind of smashing together very crudely philosophical and scientific topics, and the scientific ones here don't have the proper definitions to be able to actually uh, identify what's being talked about here. But he says free will is a higher tertiary function. It's not an illusion. It's something that's really there. You do have free will. You can have these deeply self-reflective cognitive attitudes. Of course, suggesting or trying to posit something like free will in this context is really just begging the question of what that actually means. Philosophically, we've talked about it before. I don't know if I've done a full episode on free will in general. But in this context, we would need some very distinct and careful definitions of what that means. Now, for Pongsep, of course, it's likely to mean that there's the core self, and the core self is the measure of homeostasis. If you move one way or another away from that homeostasis, then that's something that you're acting not in accordance with your free will, but if you are following, which is the ironic part, if you're following the homeostasis, whatever that is, you're acting in accordance with it, then you are exhibiting your free will. It's something, it's a concept that doesn't actually make philosophical sense, but this is what the what the author offers. And then he goes into a discussion of depression, suggesting that it's like the common cold to psychiatry and psychotherapy. You know, it's something that is pervasive and becoming more pervasive. We use meds on it all the time, but not as needed, but we're using them constantly. And the meds can change neurochemistry in, in distinctive ways. We don't really know much of anything about depression in general. We know so very little about it. Women are twice as likely to suffer from it, and we just don't have any kind of a, a quality understanding of what depression means. He references Carl Rogers. We read Carl Rogers' book, a couple of them, I think, at some point. And uh, the discussion of unconditional positive regard to develop trust with your patient. And this is one place where I take, you know, significant issue. Because we do have this kind of weird bias, and maybe I'll get into it more in the analysis, but we do have this weird bias that suggests that the things that we deem as positive are the things that we need to amplify, and the things that we deem as negative are the things that we need to reduce. And we don't have a sufficient enough understanding of the way that the human brain functions to be able to say that with any confidence. Uh, I'll talk about it more in the analysis. Uh, Anyway, so emotional states, they regulate memory. Of course, everybody knows that. Uh, Depending on your emotional state, it, it will apply something to memory more formidably versus less. There are ways to create new environments for bad memories, and this is something we kind of touched on, but there are ways to treat bad memories by associating them with positive affects, uh, like if you tickle a rat, and that's not a euphemism or anything like that, if you tickle a rat after a negative experience, it can limit the negative, the residual negative feelings thereafter. It gives them some, a positive affect that will affect the way that those negative stimuli will be registered in their brain. Uh, there's an epilogue and a coda after this, but the epilogue, he talks about how he's scalded as a one-year-old, you know, severely injured and had to go to the hospital. He talked about his cancer treatment while he was writing this book, which he would, sadly, and this is something, I, I don't know if I talked about this in the earlier parts, but I looked it up again, and it turned out he succumbed to the cancer in 2017. This book was originally published in 2012. He wrote a few more books books in between, though. And then there's this reference to this eye movement therapy that he and another researcher were working on at one point, and he was trying to figure out why it was so effective. And uh, that's pretty much the book. So...
that's four parts. That's a couple discussions. I don't think we discussed each part, but we definitely did a couple. And this is the analysis. So the thing that I wanted to talk about was how we have this uh, bias against, you know, negative emotions and this affinity for positive emotions. It's something that, like with Carl Rogers and the unconditional positive regard and much of our educational system is built on right now, is just overemphasizing, like, Brave New World. It's just this. We just want nothing but positive everywhere. That's the thing that we're trying to achieve. This kind of odd utopianism. And I don't think that people understand exactly what they're doing. The negative emotions and negative affects, you know, things like shame and discontent or annoyance or whatever, they have utility socially and they have utility when it comes to uh, people accomplishing things and functioning better and all those sorts of things that we don't necessarily understand and we might be giving up to our own detriment. I mean, this is something that, you know, the modern prison system and, and like I said, the educational system and so many other institutions, social institutions, are trying to do away with. They're trying to get rid of any kind of, and just raising children in general, parenthood. They're trying to get rid of any kind of negative stimulus, even though that's something that developed alongside all the positive ones all throughout our entire history. And I think Ponsep would, uh, if he thought about this, you know, in this way, he would think about it the same way, is that it's not just a matter of trying to lessen the negative affects and promote the positive affects. It's a matter of long-term psychological health and uh, what that actually means. Because obviously long-term, it's actually good for people to have you know failures. It's good for people to fight back from having been knocked down. Those are things that create and encourage a healthy understanding of the world and a healthy ability to, to deal with setbacks. So when you try to just remove those entirely from whatever institution you're, you're trying to do that, then that can have as poor an effect as if you removed all the positive ones entirely and just had a bunch of negative ones. So uh, I think that's something that people have to reckon with. You know, I think we're in this kind of fever dream where we're like, oh, we can do it. We can do it. We can have this utopian uh, system. And, and we tried that and it's absolutely horrendous because we don't understand the way these things work. You know, people are, at least a couple of years ago, people were the most successful financially and the least happy psychologically in history. So I think we, we need a broader, better understanding and to stop with this pretend competence where we we just act like we've really got a handle on everything that we need to have a handle on uh but beyond that you know it, this book really makes it clear how much there still is to learn about this entire topic it's a fantastic jumping off point the paying greater attention to affective states is is huge it's a gigantic leap when it comes to honestly trying to understand what's going on here because humans are not designed to be rational determiners of reality that's not what we evolved to do. You know, the emotional systems are much older, and we share them with so many organisms on the planet. They are bound to have a greater grip and uh, more robustness than the other aspects of our brain that are more recent. You know, animals have a similar pedigree. If they share some of the structures that we have, then we can't be so egocentric and narcissistic about our, our own brains uh, that we're so beyond psychologically. So it's a great book with some glaring semantic issues that we kind of talked about. You know, it's a scientific treatise, so it should be very careful with words, especially loaded philosophical words. But it's not as robust semantically as it should have been in trying to really decode, you know, all the most important things about how people function. So, big picture. I mean, everything about the current moment suggests that people are primarily motivated by affect rather than the neocortex. 
it's not just that there are some bubbling up of affects and the neocortex, you know, reins them in like the rider on the back of a horse. And then, you know, the affects and the emotions abate and then we get to be perfectly rational. Not anywhere near what we, <laughs> we can, are capable of doing. You know, abusing these systems specifically is the modus operandi of modern corporations and politicians and the cry bullies that we have to deal with now. Another thing that comes out of it, rough and tumble play, you know, if nothing else that we can get from this entire book, we had lots of pages here, but if nothing else we can get from rough and tumble play, super, super important, but there must be some kind of way to mediate these impulses on a broad scale. We know what inflames, so we should know what douses those flames. There could be some kind of automated method of doing that, of tempering the kinds of unhealthy affective responses that we're concerned about that lead to kind of the really poor political decisions and all those sorts of things. But having said that, any system like that could obviously be abused just to amplify whatever you're trying to accomplish. So there are a lot of things really to be concerned about, and obviously I could be the perfect unbiased arbiter of that system but anybody else i I don't know if i could trust them with that so (laughs) so this was uh the archaeology of mind by yak pangseb i think there was a a co-author too that i did not give any credit to and i am not going to look it up now but (laughs) that was the book this was part four i'm not sure if we're going to do a discussion on this one we've got so many awesome books that are coming up that i can't wait to get through and talk about so we might just jump to one of those but otherwise uh have a look at the books that i have published i'm gonna have another one coming up soon when it feels like when it's like the right temperature and the right looking day then i'll go ahead and publish that but (laughs) i'm waiting for that waiting for the perfect day for that one but otherwise i really hope uh, you're having a good one and i will see you on the next episode all right thanks bye (laughs)